You know, I started a sermon last week with an illustration about my son, Miles, which I rarely do, but I'm going to do it again today. So last Sunday, I had an interesting conversation with my son, Miles. We had just gotten back from his buddy Nolan's birthday party. He had cracked a piñata and various things. And we were sitting at the dinner table. And I'm not exactly sure how it got brought up. Or I'm not really sure how I really want to share how it got brought up. But the word CrossFit got brought up. And some of you might know that my son has an affinity for crosses. If we're out hiking and he sees a tree falling on another tree, he always says, hey, look, Dad, it's the cross of Christ. Or if our fly rods cross, hey, Dad, it's a cross of Christ. My son has no concept of just an ordinary cross. The liturgy has so formed his imagination and his vocabulary because we send our sins to the cross of Christ. Everything in his mind is a cross of Christ, if it's a cross at all. So when he heard me use the word CrossFit, I guess that's two words, he said, Dad, what's CrossFit? Is that when people get together and exercise and go, Hallelujah! <laughs> I said, what? And Laura started correcting him. I'm like, don't correct him. Don't correct him. Let's, let's play this out. So, so what do you think CrossFit is again? It's like when people go, hallelujah! And so I informed him that CrossFit is actually an exercise routine invented by chiropractors to generate more business. Uh, I'm kidding. If any of you love CrossFit, I'm just kidding. But it's interesting. You know, the cross and the movements of the cross get into our social imagination, don't they? It's no surprise that a child has this cross that moves all over our service, impact them so much. Before they can read, before they can understand complex prayers and conversation, they can see. They can see a cross being carried into the room, gathering the body of Christ. They can see a cross being raised up overseeing the body of Christ. They can see a cross coming to the middle of the room, unifying the body of Christ. And they can see a cross leaving, sending the body of Christ. As we continue in our sermon series called The Shape of the Liturgy, how the liturgy is shaped and how the liturgy shapes us, today I want to look at all the movements of the cross and how those reveal the authority of Christ in this place. Now, you might have noticed that if we were going in just pure chronological order, we'd hit the collect next. The collect is that prayer that I pray right before we read God's holy word. And the truth is the collect just collects the theme of the week. It's a short prayer. They're beautiful. If you don't know what to pray, look in your book of common prayer, pray a collect to our Lord, but I'm not going to give a whole sermon to it. Rather, today I want to look at the movements of the cross, and most notably, the four main movements of the cross. First, the cross is brought in at the beginning of the worship service to reveal the authority of Christ to call his people to worship. But you'll also notice that the people of authority in the church, the leaders of the church, follow behind the cross. They don't go in front of it, revealing that there is one true authority here, and it's not me. It's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Second, you'll see that the cross is where it is right now. The cross is lifted up over the congregation for the majority of the service, revealing that Christ is at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning over the entire earth, but especially over his people as we worship his good and perfect name. 
Third, we see the cross is brought to the middle, which represents the incarnation that our Lord has chosen to dwell among us. And that his cross that reconciles us to God and one another is what unifies this place. And fourth, the cross goes out, leading us into the world. We are a people that are filled in order to be sent. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me. We're going to be all over the scriptures today. Turn with me to Ephesians 1, verses 15 through 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might? That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Each week when we gather for worship, we gather under the headship of our great king. What we see is this military processional as he marches into his people in order to take his rightful place in authority over us. The king enters among his people. Not only that, but but we see our great father calling us to the dinner table that he might give us a great feast at the Eucharist. Not only that, but we see our great teacher and prophet gathering us together as he proclaims by his word his truth as he speaks us forth into a new kind of people. What we see when the cross is carried into the room is that there is one ultimate authority here. There is one head of the church, and it's no creature. It's Jesus Christ himself. You know, this is why it's so significant that right behind the cross, you'll see the cross is being marched in, and behind the cross is normally the deacon, and they're carrying the Bible high and lifted up. To reveal that we are following Christ and his word which directs us. We are a people of the word. That his authority is revealed to us as he proclaims his truth to us. Then after the deacon, you'll often see maybe a preacher if I'm not preaching that week or something like that. Then the next person in line is normally the person who presides at Eucharist. Whether that's me, normally the priest. Or or if the bishop's here, he's at the very back of the line. Right? But what do we see ultimately? The leaders of the church are only qualified to lead if they are first led. The leaders of the church are only qualified to lead if they are first led by the cross. You know, many of us recognize this is a profound need in the church today because we are seeing churches left and right disintegrate due to moral failures in leadership. You know, when I was in seminary, I predicted something. (laughs) I said, you know what? I think guys my age have figured out you can't have affairs, but you can do just about anything else you want. 
Just don't sleep with the wrong person, but you can bully the snot out of your staff. You can build your platform so that it's a personal brand to build your own wealth. You can do all kinds of things in the name of Christ. Just don't sleep with the wrong person. That'll get you out of ministry. Don't kill anybody, but nothing else will. But what are we seeing now? We are seeing that those chickens have come home to roost as leader after leader is being taken out of office because they have chosen to use satanic worldly power for their own personal gain and using the church to build their own name rather than the name of Christ. What we see is abuse scandal after abuse scandal. We see cover-up after cover-up. We see misappropriation of funds. We see staff members coming forward saying, I couldn't get a meeting with this person. The minute I brought up any problems at all, I was silenced and cast out of the church. What are we seeing in the evangelical world? What is our witness in the world? That, yeah, we're against sexual sin, but we're for any other thing that you can imagine, Right? However, what do we see in the liturgy? The liturgy reveals to us that a godly leader is only someone who has first been led by Jesus Christ. It's not a platform builder. It's someone who recognizes that his platform is that which needs to be built, not any man or any woman's. You know, this is what drew me to the Anglican church, actually. I remember I was 26 years old, a little bit younger than Kyle, some of, some of y'all's age. And I was, uh, Cindy Hamilton said, Tim, I can make you a prayer minister at this conference and that'll get you in for free because I didn't have any money to go. There was an Anglican conference here in town. And so I, I went in as a prayer minister and, and uh, Bishop Steve Breedlove, who's Derek's bishop, was consecrated as a bishop in the Anglican church. And all of the Rwandan clergy came over and all the Rwandan bishops came over to have this beautiful image of unity together under the headship of Jesus Christ. And there was a table set up somewhere and they said, hey, if you want to help lead a, a seminary, come on over and, you know, we can give you, we're doing okay there, Tim. <laughs> You're good. <laughs> we can give you, it's okay, Hallie, we love you. <laughs> we love you dearly. <laughs> Uh, what was I saying? I've got a baby the exact same age, so it's in my brain. That's why. Uh, what was I saying? Oh, yeah, they wanted me to help come over and start a seminary. And there was one other young guy at the table and four Rwandan bishops and the Archbishop of Rwanda. And I'm like, how on earth did I get at this table? So I, they talked to me about how they, you know, come on over, teach at this seminary. I'm like, I'm not qualified for that. I don't know anything. They're like, come over anyway. We need the help. But then I just got to talk to him. I got to talk to them about their life and ministry. I got to talk to them about their faithful witnesses. I asked, how can I be praying for you to these men who were leading the church, who had led the church through a genocide, who had led a church through a deep reconciliation and ministry that we just don't even see here in the United States. And what I saw in each of them was not a platform builder, was not someone who wanted to make their own name, was not someone who chose comfort in life, but someone who followed Jesus Christ. They were men who were willing to follow behind the cross wherever it may lead. And what we have each week when the cross is brought forward is a recognition that Jesus rules and reigns in this place. And his leaders that he has given us, deacons and priests and others, are called to follow him and his lead rather than their own. First, the cross is brought into the room to represent the authority of Christ. Then the cross is marched up 
onto the stage to reveal to us that he is reigning in this place. I'd like to look at a few passages today because the reign of Christ is somewhat confusing. Where he's reigning, how he's reigning. Turn with me to Revelation 5, 11 through 14. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Where is Christ right now? Where is his body He's at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning over the entire earth. But it's also interesting. Revelation 3.21 confuses this just a little bit. It says, the one who conquers, I will grant them to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So he's at the right hand of God and he's on a throne. But God the Father's on a throne, but he's on his throne. Okay, let's keep going. Isaiah 9.7 of the increase of his government and the peace, there will be no end. And on the throne, look at this, of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So where is he? He's at the right hand of the father on a throne, but it's not any old throne. It's the throne of David. Now, this is significant because in 2 Samuel 7, what promise does God give to David? He gives him an everlasting covenant, an everlasting promise that his throne will have no end. Now, in order to have a throne that has no end, because I've been to Israel recently, there's no king, okay? There's no king. There hasn't been one for a very, very long time. What does that necessitate? It's a heavenly throne, a heavenly throne occupied by the descendant of David, the eternal king of Israel, the people of God. But he's not just any old king. Hebrews 8.1 tells us he's a priestly king. Now, the point of what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Now, that gets slightly confusing. Again, he's a high priest. He is seated at the right hand of God, interceding for you, taking all your prayers and making them perfect, taking all of your fallen worship and perfecting it before his father in heaven. He's seated at his right hand, but he's on a throne. And it's not any old throne. It's the throne of David that will have no end. So what do we see here? Well, we don't actually have an entire clarifying thing of that because spatial relations are somewhat complicated in the scriptures because God the Father is spirit and can't be defined utterly by spatial relations. But what do we know ultimately here? What we see here is that Jesus Christ reigns upon the throne above all thrones, the place of authority that is over all authority. Above him, there is no other. Below him is all of us. He is the one who rules and reigns over all things. And therefore, in our worship, 
We come together to worship the lamb who was slain, who has what? Begun his reign amongst his people. And therefore, you might often hear that the worship service is our primary place of political activism. This is the place where we recognize that we are not ultimately, you know, a democratic republic, although we are that here in the United States. Rather, we are all monarchists, even though I know that that grinds at us as Americans. We are all people that recognize that this is not a democracy. This is not some republic that we have together. This is a monarchy. And what you will see is that monarchies rise or fall all throughout the Old Testament based upon the goodness of the king. When David is obedient, the kingdom's going great. When he falls into sin, it falls into shambles. And what we have is a hope that our hope is not placed in a king who ever goes wrong. It is not placed in a king who ever follows the whims of his desires. Rather, our king wills our good. Our king loves us so much that he lived and died in our place to gather together a redeemed, renewed people under his good and perfect authority. Why is the cross up there right now? It's to recognize that the preaching of God's word sits under his authority. The reading of God's word is under his authority. The administration of his meal is under his authority. And yet, what else do we realize? That our great king has chosen to invite us in. Our great king has chosen to give us a seat at his table. Our great king has chosen to give us a place in his courtroom that he might speak to us and enter into communion with us. The cross rules and reigns over the people of God because the cross rules and reigns over the entire earth. Now, you might also notice, and I need to hurry up here, that this really beautiful moment in the service, when I first became an Anglican, it was one of the pieces that stood out to me the most, that at one point the cross is carried off the stage and brought to the middle. And whether that's Deacon Carey or Deacon Kyle or whoever is serving as the deacon that week carries the word of God amidst the people of God and all of us do what? We turn in to face the cross. It's that time where you can say, oh yeah, they, are, they showed up 10 minutes late, but they are here sort of a thing. You check in on each other. You actually get to look at each other for a minute. But what is it meant to symbolize? What does it reveal to us about our Lord? that our Lord did not choose to stand distant and aloof from us, far away from our sins, far away from our struggles, far away from our sufferings. But John 1.14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt where? Among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. I shared this with you before, but John makes up the word here for dwelled. It doesn't say dwelled in the Bible. It says tabernacled. What was the tabernacle? The tabernacle was the mobile temple of God that followed God's people through the wilderness where God's presence dwelled and united his people as the camp of Israel encircled the tabernacle. And what do we have now? We have our incarnate Lord 
who has chosen to dwell among us, bringing the very glory of God into this place to unite us together under his cross. Because I think it's, it's fitting that we recognize that it's a cross that unites us. It's an image of, of Roman barbaric torturous death that brings us together. Because when the cross is brought to the middle, we are united around it because we are united together on two fronts. Our reconciliation with God through the cross of Jesus Christ and our reconciliation with one another. All of us gathered around the cross, recognizing that outside of the cross, our sins can't be forgiven. Outside of the cross, we are still dead in our trespasses. And yet by the cross, we have been healed. Through the death of our great king, we have been brought through death and raised to new life as sons and daughters of God. What unites us together is our common need for salvation. But this common need for salvation also does something interesting amongst us as a people. We are a people that are united around the grace that flows forth from the cross of Jesus Christ. Because in the cross, when we're all united together looking at it, what happens? We see someone across the room, but we see them through the cross. We do not see mere ordinary people. Rather, we see someone who recognizes their sin and recognizes their need for salvation. You know, often we get so frustrated with each other because we expect each other to be perfect. However, the church is ultimately the place where we've all come to grips with the fact that we aren't perfect, right? At least if you believe the true gospel. If you believe the true gospel, it's a recognition that you aren't perfect. And therefore, where you see someone across the room through the cross, you are seeing a brother and sister in Christ who is coming to the source of life, knowing that they can't create life in themselves. What you see is a fellow journeyer seeking life because they know that they can't generate it in themselves. But not only that, you also see someone through the cross which reveals that God loved that person so much that he gave his son for them. They are not someone merely who is dead in their sins and been raised again, but they are also someone who is so beloved by the father that he sent his very son to die for them. What you are looking at through the cross is someone who has infinite worth because our infinite God chose to shed his infinite blood for them. When the cross comes to the middle, we are reminded that our God has chosen to dwell among us. Our God has chosen to die for us, to reconcile us to him. And our God has chosen to form a new kind of people, a people who are forgiven, a people who are loved, a people who are reconciled to one another, not because they are perfect, but because Christ was perfect for them. The cross comes to the middle to unite us around our great king. And then what you will finally see, and if this is your first Sunday, you will see in a few minutes, at the very end of the service, what happens with the cross. The cross is marched out of the room, and we say, let us go forth in the name of Christ. And everyone says, thanks be to God. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. 
and we go forth in the name of Christ. Now, what's going on there? It's recognizing that not only are the clergy led into worship by the cross, but all of us are led out into the world by this same authority. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John 20, verses 19 through 23. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus come and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then his, uh, the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. You know, I love the Trinitarian nature of this passage. Jesus says, just as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. Now, in Trinitarian theology, which you all know, we're called Trinity Anglican Church for a reason. We try to root everything in the Trinitarian relations of our great God. Our God is a God of mission because the Father is always viewed as the one who sends. He sends his son to live and die and rise and rule and reign for us. The son is the one who is sent by the father. And it's interesting, the spirit is sent by both the father and the son. Now, what do we see going on all throughout scriptures? We serve a God who is a sending God. We serve a God who is on mission to create, and when his creation fell into sin, to redeem his lost world, to enter into life with him. Even within the very being of God, we serve a sending God. And our Lord, in his mercy, has chosen to bring us into that mission, to bring us into that life of being sent just as the Father has sent the Son, the Son is sending His people. And then what does He do? He breathes forth the Holy Spirit on them, giving them the one who is sent, the Spirit, to empower them to a life of ministry. And therefore, at the end of every service, what do we do? We go forth in the name of Christ to love and serve the world, to do the things that He has given us to do. I was recently reading Michael uh, Jensen's book on the Anglican liturgy, and he makes an interesting point, and who knows if he's right, but he says, you know, the Presbyterians, they tend to have this thing called the regulative principle. It has to be clearly spelled out in the Bible in order to do it in your worship service. Then you have something called the normative principle, and we would mostly fall under the normative principle, which means if it's not forbidden, then you can do it. Like the movements of the cross. There's nothing wrong with it. It's clear rooted in scripture. Do it because it's helpful to learn. He would say that Cramner, who's the very first Anglican, the guy who started the whole thing, that Cramner's chief goal was to be edifying for the people of God to fill the people of God. Yes, to worship the name of God, but also to fill up the joy tank of God's people, to fill them up with the presence and power of God to be sent forth into the world to do the work that he has given you to do. You know, moms, moms here, 
There's a few moms here, I think. Oh, man, you need to be filled. I spend two days with my boys, and I say, I got to get back to work, right? You need the worship service to be filled up, to go back to do the work the Lord has given you to do to disciple your children. Fathers, you're in the same boat. Many of us have this in our neighborhoods, in our places of work, in our families, wherever the Lord has us. We are a people that are sent out on mission in the name of Jesus Christ. And therefore, the worship service is meant to be a place in which we are filled up with his presence, reminding each of us who we are in Jesus Christ, being filled with a joy that can only come from him by the power of his Holy Spirit, that he might send us out to do the work he has given us to do. But always remember, family, just as the clergy can only lead as we are first led, we can only go out into the world if Jesus goes out before us. You look for him where he's leading you in the week? Are your eyes fixed upon the shepherd where he is directing you and guiding you throughout your week? Are there specific people that he is leading you to that you might be his faithful witness to them? Worship doesn't end here. It only begins here. Life with Christ doesn't end here. It only begins here as we enter into a week of following him a week of discipleship under the reign of his cross and his authority. So what does a cross do each week? It reveals to us who Christ is. He is the one that gathers us. He is the one that reigns over us. He is the one that reconciles us to God and one another. And he is the one that sends us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that your cross rules over this place that by your blood we are redeemed, by your blood we are given new life. Lord, would we see the work that you have given us to do as you send us out of this place? Lord, would we see one another as men and women that are seeking the shade that can only come under the cross, sending forth love to one another as you have first loved us, and forgiveness as you have so generously forgiven us. All to the glory of your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.